Hey, you guys. Uh, it's Oceania, and today I have bumped into some inspiration. So I want to touch on abuse and borderline personality disorder. So just a heads up, I am in my car. I just came from the beach. And I wanted to record before I lost inspiration. So I'm, I apologize in advance if the quality is weird. Um, or if there's too much background noise. I, um, I honestly just, uh, I really like recording in my car. I really like recording outside of my house. Um, because that's where I find the most inspiration. That's where I feel the most free and the most authentic. So, um, hopefully it doesn't turn out to be terrible. But, um, yeah, getting into, I think I found a parking spot. So I'm just going to park and chat with you guys for a little bit. I have such bad anxiety about uh, about just being idle um, in public, but this should be fine. Uh, Childish Gambino is playing lightly in the background. I'm not sure if you guys could hear it or not, but um, I, I like a little bit of background noise. But anyway, getting into things, I have had a very strange week. Um, I have been learning a lot more about borderline personality disorder and how it personally affects me. And I have been learning some valuable information, uh, information that's been helping me thrive and that's been pushing me towards recovery. Um... But in discovering this information and better understanding my disorder and the possible manifestations as well as the possible causes of my BPD, I've been, <clears throat> I've been experiencing a lot of triggers and uh, dealing with a lot of shadow work altogether. So I just want to be very open about my experience because I found that in healing others and helping others heal, the most valuable way to do so is to share your experience. Uh, there's a lot of power in narrative healing. Um, story sharing has been passed down by ancestors and it's just a very powerful tool so I try to utilize it a lot more um, so I was actually listening to a podcast while I was at the beach I like to go for lonesome walks and when I say lonesome I don't mean lonely I just mean I like to be by myself walking in a calm atmosphere and I'll put something very resourceful on. Um, currently, my newest obsession is a podcast in which the uh, orator kind of takes really complex and 
wacky subjects and normalizes them to kind of help to fight stigma. And one of the subjects he loves to talk about is borderline personality disorder. So in this podcast, he was basically talking to a female who was raped multiple times and developed borderline personality disorder as a result. And this was the first time I really heard or witnessed a discussion on the type of abuse that people with BPD had to experience in order to get where they are today. So this inspired me to speak up on some of my abuse. Um, I figured this would be really appropriate being that I run a group uh, tailored to abuse victims or abuse survivors. And um, this would just be a really good opportunity to, you know, open up about my experience in the hopes that people feel more empowered and more comfortable talking about their stories and their experience. So um, I have experienced many forms of abuse in my life. Starting from a young, young age, uh, my mother, who is one of my primary perpetrators, was mentally ill before I was even born. Uh, She has narcissistic personality disorder with co-occurring borderline personality disorder. Um, So for those of you who did not know, you can have more than one personality disorder. Yes, you can. Um, And a lot of the times, narcissism and borderline traits often co-occur within each other. Um, So long story short, well, no, it's not a long story short. I have a bad habit of speeding up my speech or trying to rush through my thoughts. Uh, It's just learned behavior from trauma, and I'm still working on not rushing myself and not feeling in, you know, like a burden to others. So, uh, I could say to start things off, um, when I was born, my mother went through postpartum and my family, uh, they're all immigrants. I'm actually the first born in the U.S on both sides of my family. So I'm the first American born on both my mother and father's side. And they weren't really aware of their options. Uh, The music is a little loud, I'm gonna turn it down. Yeah, that's better. (laughs) Um, They weren't really aware of the options that were available to them for things like postpartum. And uh, my father, major dependent personality, major uh, escapist, when my mother started showing signs of her depression and her angst, he resorted to workaholism and disappeared. Uh, He would obviously come home, but emotionally he checked out. So my mother did not have any support uh, and she began resorting to destructive 
very borderline-like behaviors. Um, one of them being, you know, rage. She had a lot of rage. Um, and she became very manipulative in an attempt to get her needs met because everyone was kind of pulling away from her, uh, not being appropriately available for a newly, uh, you know, like a, a new mother, a young mother. She was a teenager when she had me, you know, so there was a lot of stress going on with her. And, you know, I became a target. I became her ticket to validation and her ticket to getting her needs met. Because as long as I was a helpless infant, people had to listen to her when it came to me. So, uh, my mother did a lot of crazy things. Uh, she would throw me on the ground. She bit me. Um, she would hit me as an infant, you know, for crying too much. There was a lot of bodily trauma I experienced, and this was uh, expressed to me by my father and my grandfather and my aunts and uncles. So there was a lot of bodily trauma experience that I faintly remember on the subconscious level because I do struggle with tension and anxiety when it comes to my body. Uh, and when people are in close proximity, I shut down. I have a lot of anxiety regarding my body and my personal bubble. Uh, um, so, you know, it's the abuse. I was exposed to abuse as soon as I was brought into this world. And it did not stop, you know, as I got older. It got worse. So, sorry. There are lots of cars that are passing by right now because the beach just closed. Um, but the abuse did not... You know, when I started becoming aware and able to speak for myself and being integrated into school systems and being exposed to more people that could potentially help me, the abuse did not stop. My parents just got more clever in how they went about it. And for me, that's still something very difficult to understand because if they were able to censor themselves enough to make sure that the authorities or people in power would not know what was going on in the home, it gives me the impression that they understand what they did was not right or not appropriate. So that is still one of my greatest conflicts and when it comes to my journey to healing um especially when a lot of people tell me things like oh they didn't know better you know they probably learned this from their parents you know like saying this was just learned behavior and that you know a lot of people who have very 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 high empathy but not enough discernment have a tendency to defend abusers and minimize experience of, experiences of the abused. I am not one of those people, but I have encountered a lot of them. So, um, arguments like that, theories of that sort can really hinder the healing process because this kind of thinking kind of pushes the survivor 
towards self-blame more than self-empowerment. So, um, again, the abuse became more creative. Um, it got to the point where I was being beaten for coughing too loudly. Um, and I learned as I got older that my mother suffered from sensory overload. Uh, and you know, there's probably some PTSD in the mix. So loud, unexpected, sudden noises and movements were triggering to her. And because she does not know how to regulate her emotions, her first instinct is to lash out in rage. Um, I actually began developing some of these traits as I got older as well, which I will talk about when I get to my symptom, when, the, when, I, when I start talking about symptoms of BPD. But um, getting back to the abuse, you know, like things like that, uh, you know, making childlike mistakes, things that children do, like spilling a drink or not fixing the bed perfectly enough resulted in a beating um, on top of like these unpredictable and very intense bouts of rage and anger coming from my mother we were extremely isolated <coughs> sorry I had to cough there we were extremely I isolated and um, we didn't have friends we weren't allowed to have friends so In school, I had, a, you know, I I was decent. You know, I had people who were attracted to me and were interested in developing friendships with me. But it was very difficult when they would be like, hey, let's have a sleepover, or let's have a play date, or let's do this together. And my first response was covering up the fact that my family wasn't normal and we didn't do those things, you know? Uh, and the weird part is, like, I, I would get punished for, for being too honest, for saying things like, oh, no, my mom doesn't like us to have friends, or we're not allowed to sleep over people's houses. That was too honest, and that made my parents look bad, and so I would get beat. So I had to cover for them and say things like, oh, no, I'm not feeling well, or, uh, no, like, I, I'm allergic to certain fabrics, and, you know, I, I don't have a nephew, like... Things like this, I, I would have to make up these absurd excuses to cover the ch my parents' checks, and that really hindered my self-esteem, because not only was I being abused, but I was covering for my abusers. And when I start talking about learned helplessness later on, uh, I will go into depth about how... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, guys. Um... I'll go into depth about how covering for abusers, because they make you do that oftentimes, can really create a trauma bond that is very, uh, just very difficult to remove yourself from. Um, so, you know, the, the abuse was at its peak when I was a teenager. Um, I was in high school, and not only was, or I would say it started in middle school even. 
not only was I being bullied at home, but I was suddenly going to school and being bullied by my peers for the first time. Um, either because I didn't have the best clothes. My parents did not do name brands because we didn't have money, you know. Um, I didn't have the best clothing. Uh, I was very socially awkward because I wasn't allowed out much. Um, I had... I was a little behind in school because English was not my first language and I did not have parents to help me. So I didn't pick up on things quickly and I wasn't getting the best grades in certain areas. So I just had this feeling that I was like this outcast, this alien. And it was very hard because I was also being... Uh, enabled and not allowed independence so that I was emotionally more immature than my peers you know things like talking about sex and romance I wasn't even allowed to date until I you know in my culture there is no dating there is your first is your last if you can make it be that way and you're not leaving your parents house until you marry that one person so Luckily, I, I was rebellious enough to not abide to those circumstances, and I started dating at a really young age, but being that I had to do it in secret, I got into some very awkward and inappropriate relationships with older men, um, with older women. My relationships were often perverted and inappropriate because I didn't have the supervision and even the knowledge of how to do better for myself. Um, so a lot of what was going on behind these closed doors made me feel very uncomfortable um, around the general public because I knew I was different and I knew um, I knew that I couldn't talk about what made me different so it was almost like I became mute I became silent and I lost my voice and I felt like a ghost just roaming around the planet with no real identity and no purpose because my whole life was being stolen from me in a sense so, in high school, uh, I started getting more rebellious because I joined sports teams and my coaches began intervening. Uh, they saw what was going on. I was a really good athlete. Um, sports honestly saved my life. <coughs> I'm so sorry for the coughing. Um, my throat is so dry. Hold on, I'm just going to take a sip of water. That's better. Um, but yes, my coaches were very... They took on the parent role, as they should have, because, you know, coaches are kind of like surrogate parents at the end of the day. And when my mom was doing things like rushing me into the car as soon as games were over and not even letting us do our, our proper ritual, like 
have a team meeting and dissect the games, my coaches began realizing like the behavior was overly controlling. It was inappropriate for my age, which was like 15, 16 years old. And they realized that it just was not being treated properly. And they began battling with her. And unfortunately, she had the balls to punch back. And so they never really won um, any of those fights. And they did their very best to try and give me the tools needed to one day fight for myself and free myself from the situation I was put in. Um, So as I started playing more sports and getting exposure to more people and the sense of community and getting uh, opportunities I never thought I would get, my mother grew very intimidated and treated me the worst she's treated me yet. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know about surveillance abuse. That's something I've recently discovered. It's a very real thing. Um, There was no privacy. I mean, I would be in the bathroom and if the doors were locked, she would rage and lash out. She would be like, there's no locked doors in my house, you know? Um, I would be sleeping at night and she would think of something I didn't do right. Or, I'm sorry, we, I actually had a bedtime at 15, 16. I had to be in bed by 9.30 the latest um, to make sure I could get up for school. And so we were usually in bed before my parents. And if we would be sent to bed and then as she was coming up the stairs, sometimes she would burst into my room and beat me for something that I did not do right. Um throughout the day like maybe I didn't wash the dishes on time or I forgot to do a chore she asked me to do and the worst part about it is like this would happen like at 5 p.m. she would discover that something was incomplete and she would brood over it for hours she would brood over it from when she got home till when we went to bed and it was when we were finally in sleep and relaxed and trying to shut our minds off when when she would choose to barge in to our private spaces and beat us. (coughs) I'm sorry, guys. I don't know what's going on with this cough, but um, it might be with us throughout the whole podcast. So I hope you don't mind because I I don't want to just stop recording over a cough. Um, But yes, it was very intimidating because it got to the point where when we would hear those footsteps of our parents coming upstairs, we didn't know if she was going to burst in and beat us or if she was going to walk by our rooms and not, you know, not pay any mind to us that night. And that unpredictability created a lot of stress and anxiety that eventually led to a sleep disorder. Um, and just a lot of... Uh, around that age I, I my, my mental health plummeted um, even though I had more opportunities than ever before my anxiety and my fear got the best of me and my mental health plummeted um, I began hallucinating for the first time so with hallucinations I mean seeing shadows and dark figures at the corner of my eye being unable to sleep feeling like something was going to attack me, um, 
hearing noises that weren't really there and not in a schizophrenic sense but more like a just faint uh, impressions of things that I had no uh, proof of or no way of proving to others um, <clears throat> so the shadows and the, the just the paranoia it, it just paranoia it was all paranoia and the paranoia became so bad it became crippling um, and I began, uh, looking to relationships as an escape, um, from the pain and the hurt and the confusion. And I realized at this point in my life, I was attracting a lot of saviors and codependents. I was always attracting someone who really, like, was impressed or charmed by my story and my tragedies and wanted to save me and you know I would escape into these savior like people um because that I was just desperate for a way out you know and my discernment I didn't have much discernment because I didn't have a clear mind um so I would say uh, up until 17, when I left for college, I was being physically and psychologically um, and even emotionally abused by my mother. Uh, and it only got worse up until the very last day of me uh, living in that home. Um, it just kept getting worse. <clears throat> so, um,. The last time I was beaten or felt a blow to my body was 17 years old. Um, and how it affects me today is I have a lot of body trauma. Um, I don't know how to stand or even sit close to people without my body shutting down <clears throat> and instantly becoming tense and rigid. And uh, the anxiety is so bad, like I, I can develop a migraine or uh, when I was younger, like in uh, middle school, elementary school, I used to get migraines and I used to vomit. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. I would always get a migraine and then I would hurl like it was really bad. I, and people would say, oh, you have social anxiety Oh, you have social anxiety. Well, yeah, because people are standing too close to me and I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. So I I was physically responding to the stress and the fear that I was feeling 24-7. Um, and today I've done a lot of work on myself. Um, I've done a lot of letting go uh learning how to control my body and its movements and learning how to have stronger boundaries and so I am not as awkward um, and as uncomfortable in my body as I used to be but consequently trauma like that does not go away overnight especially 17 years of bodily trauma so, unfortunately, 
in intimate relationships, I can be difficult to be with um, because I shut down. You know, if I'm having a flashback, I can get very uh, unbearable. I can become almost histrionic, hysterical. Um, It's difficult, you know. Um, But I'm still working on it. So I am patient with myself. And I am attracting people who are also patient with me, especially uh, the more I continue to work on myself. Um, So outside of physical abuse, uh, one of the leading causes of borderline personality disorder is often sexual abuse. And at the same time, for some reason, it's also the most difficult type of abuse to talk about openly because uh, society has a tendency to silence sexual assault uh, abusers. Um, And, you know, many who have experienced sexual abuse have difficulty um, finding their voice. In my opinion, sexual abuse is the worst kind of abuse that one can experience because it's beyond your outer body. It's someone coming into you um, and violating your insides. Um, And it doesn't even have to be sexual abuse by penetration. Um, On a spiritual level altogether, Sexual abuse is just very damaging, uh, and it can affect us unknowingly. Um, a lot of the uh, the aftermath of sexual abuse, it takes a lot of survivors years to understand how they've been affected by the abuse. Um, years of repressed memories and nightmares and uh, PTSD and... <laughs> It's just, and on the spiritual level, what it does on the spiritual level is beyond words. Uh, I think that's the scariest part of sexual abuse, how it affects a person spiritually. Um, That can be very difficult to overcome. So uh, a lot of people with BPD have experienced sexual abuse oftentimes more than um, one instance of sexual abuse and uh, it's actually you know it, it explains the hypersexual or quote unquote quote um, promiscuity um, or promiscuous behavior so uh, digging in to my sexual abuse history um, It's a long history, Uh, and I don't even say this proudly. Um, The first time I was inappropriately touched was at eight years old by my close cousin, who was about six years older than me. Uh, I was in the single digits, and he was 
well on his way to teenagehood, or I think he was a teenager. Um, and uh, we were left alone while my uncle ran somewhere. I don't know where he ran, but he did leave. And um, my uncle left a porno in his room. And my cousin watched the porno already, but because we weren't alone, he used it as an opportunity to play with that porno. And he basically um, came up to me and said, while my brother was in the room, hey, do you guys want to watch this porno? And my brother, uh, you know, we we put it on thinking it was going to be funny, like lighthearted humor, uh, just kids exploring adult stuff. And it was at first, you know, we all laughed. Um, My brother was disgusted. We found that kind of funny. Um, And then, you know, I, you know, I asked him to turn it off and I told him, you know, like, I don't want to traumatize my brother because, you know, I got into protective big sister mode. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. And um, he, you know, we let my brother play my uncle's uh, joystick or one of his, I forget which system he had, uh, one of his uh, video game systems at the time. And while he was playing, my cousin pulled me in the back behind um, a dresser that uh, my uncle had where we had complete privacy. And um, my uh, cousin asked me if I wanted to try some of the things that we saw on the porno and I you know I told him no and ironically I my reason for saying no was because of my brother I was like you know I don't want to make my brother uncomfortable like I remember you know trying to explain this to him like I I was a very protective older sister um and you know he kind of just like said oh he's busy with the game he's not even going to pay attention to us and he was like begging me and begging me like this eagerness that he had I've never seen it in him before you know so I was kind of uh pressured into um loosening my guard and my boundaries because I just didn't know how to respond to his eagerness and while he was like trying to convince me he was touching me at the same time so it was kind of already happening before I could even give consent um so you know eventually I just like you know, in a childlike manner, I was like, fine, you know, like, what do you want me to do? Like, very childlike, very naive. And, uh, I just remember he was asking me to do everything, everything, um, at that point. I did everything that there is to do sexually with him. Um, and... There was this one thing he asked me to do that I'm not really comfortable talking about, and I was really grossed out. And that's when I finally, like, you know, started screaming and, like, you know, saying that's disgusting, you know. And um, he got embarrassed. Um, He got really embarrassed, and he, uh, you know, he was on his way to the bathroom and running to the bathroom and whatnot. And, um, my uncle walked into the room in the midst of him running to the bathroom and just kind of saw what was going on. He saw us behind the dresser. 
he saw us scattering and he pretty much figured it out and so he kicked my brother out the room and had a talk with the both of us and um you know he I'm sorry if you know I sounded very like dry and flat while I was telling that story but I felt myself disassociating uh, so I feel like I need to make a point of that at this time because I uh, I know that a lot of survivors of abuse when they are talking about the trauma they tend to disassociate or disconnect so that they don't have to re-experience the, the emotions that come with uh, such experiences so uh you know i know when you're listening to podcasts and whatnot like it's you know it's it's normal to want someone lively and energetic and entertaining but um being that i'm dealing with this specific topic i'm you know i want to just be as authentic as possible and um i'm also going to do my best to explain things as they come because I want you guys to uh, be educated, you know, and be politically correct when it comes to um, what it's like, what it's like for survivors. And, you know, if you're not a survivor and you're just someone who wants to learn more, how to be a better ally or a better ally. Um, So, yes, uh, again, sorry if I sound flat or it sounds like some type of blunted affect. It's just that my, I guess I was disassociating to, you know, not have to relive those um, emotions like guilt and shame and all of that. So, um, you know, my uncle had a talk with us and he basically blamed the both of us. Though there is a six year age difference and I was basically taken advantage of. He told me that I was just as responsible as my cousin was um, and that I should know better and uh, something told me that wasn't right of him to say um I fought it you know I tried to tell my parents even after that because he did not make an effort to tell them and when I told my parents my father in particular you know, he grew very angry because this was his nephew. And, um, he basically told me that we don't talk about this and that he better never hear me talk about this ever again. So, um, I had to not talk about that ever again. And I never really processed what happened between me and my cousin. Um, that was the first instance. After that, uh, you know, my parents tried to make an effort by switching babysitters. They brought me to my mother's side of the family and had them babysit um, us. And uh, my aunt, who was watching me at the time, she was 16. Uh, One day I walked in on her watching porn and masturbating. And she, you know, she didn't show any shame. She kind of just laughed and thought it was really funny. And so, you know, I kind of, like, respected her boundaries. And I was like, hey, do you want me to leave? Like, I see you're in the middle of something. Um, In kid language, of course. 
And she was kind of just like, no, you can come in, shut the door. So I did. And she told me to lay down next to her. And she asked me to perform oral oral sex on her. Uh, so that was uh, instance number two. And by that instance, I learned that I couldn't talk about things like that because I would get in trouble and it was all my fault. So uh, I internalized that as well. Um, And then shortly after that, my that same aunt and her sister, who was about a year or two older, uh, molested my brother in front of me. I watched them molest him. Um, that was a very un- I words can't even explain what that experience was like. Um, but that, you know, you and this goes to show that you don't have to experience abuse. In order to be affected by it, you can witness abuse and you can get, you can become just as traumatized as you could, would have been if you experienced it yourself. Witnessing abuse is just as traumatizing as experiencing it. Um, So watching my brother and he was, he was not cooperative, you know, he was very uncomfortable with it. He was fighting them off and they were just not respecting, um, they were just, you know, not right in the head. I don't don't really know what they were thinking, but that was very hard to, uh, witness. Um, the third instance was, uh, when I went to my uncle's Thanksgiving, um, party. Uh, every year we went to my uncle's house for Thanksgiving. It's tradition. And, uh, this, this guy, like, I loved him. He is, he was so amazing. You know, he had such a lively personality. Like, it was always a joy going to his place. And my parents were very close with him. Um, and one day while we were, uh, you know, the adults were dancing and they were all drunk. My brother and I were sitting on the stairs, you know, just miserable (laughs) because we were just not having a good time. And so my uncle, while he was drunk, came to check up on us and, uh, you know, he was like asking us if we were good and everything. And I was just like, yeah, like we're good. And he asked me if I wanted, um, to get like snacks for my brother and I, and we were kind of just sitting in the corner miserable. So I kind of took the offer. And he told me to follow him to the kitchen and said that, you know, my brother could stay on the stairs and wait. And so I followed him and, um, we, he was like making the drinks for me. And then he was like trying to like dance with me and play with me a little bit, uh, because dancing, dance is very big in my culture. And so, you know, we were dancing to the music that we could hear in the background and he got really close and like started holding me almost like. I was an adult, like, trying to dance with me like I was an adult, and then, uh, he, like, started kissing on my neck and licking my neck, and, uh, you know, I just kind of pulled away, and luckily he didn't go any further than that, but, um, 
you know, I just wrote that off as him being drunk and, uh, you know, like I, I didn't really, uh, make a big deal out of that one, but I feel like being that I'm talking about sexual abuse and molestation and all that, I feel like I need to include that because I was not even, uh, a preteen yet and he was doing that to me, um, so it's highly inappropriate and I feel like it has to be mentioned. Um, and then the last instance that I can remember when it comes to family is, uh, my cousin who came to visit me, um, one day it was on Christmas and he brought us presents. Uh, he came with my other cousins and, uh, he, uh, you know, asked to play with me in my room to see my Christmas presents, and my parents were downstairs drinking. Um, my brother, they sent him to go get something. I don't know where he went, but they sent him somewhere. I remember it was two of them in the room, and they were just, like, staring at me really uncomfortably, and or in an uncomfortable manner. And um, my cousin was, like, asking me to show him my my dolls and all of that and I did um and he was just like okay yeah that's really cool like come here and uh sit on my lap and show me your doll so I did you know because we were also really cool and he was actually one of my favorite cousins because I had really low self-esteem as a kid uh like I said I was really isolated and not a lot of people showed me warmth growing up And he was one of the few people who showed me a lot of love and a lot of warmth. Like, he was just always, like, making sure, like, he was boosting my confidence and all that. So, I have a lot of trust in him. And he asked me to sit on his lap, and I did. And um, he was just, like, you know, kissing on my, the back of my shoulders and uh like rubbing my thighs while I was playing with the doll and I felt his uh I felt his penis harden and kind of stand up and I stood up abruptly because I was scared I've never felt anything like that before um and he uh was just like no 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 no. like it's not like that and I think now that I'm looking back at it I think it's kind of strange his choice of words (laughs) His choice of words was really strange Um, because it's almost like, why would you say that if you were truly innocent, you know? He said, it's nothing like that. And I was like, you know, not even 12 years old. So why would you feel the need to say something like that to me? What would I know about what that is? Like, as a kid, how would I even understand that kind of language, you know? So for him to be like, oh, it's nothing like that. It's very just suspicious now that I look back at it. And, um, you know, as soon as I stood up, he tried to sit me back down. I don't know if it's because he wanted to hide his boner from my other cousin or uh, if he just wanted to have his way. But he tried to sit me back down. And uh, when I sat, when he, he pulled me back down onto his lap, he came really close to my ear and we were watching Lilo and Stitch on the TV. That's what I had uh, playing. Um,
this part is like really hard for me. Um, but I, you know, I try very hard to just talk. Uh, because for me, this is like my way of getting my power back. And um, I, I just know that telling my story is going to help others. And that's what keeps me motivated, you know. Um, that's what keeps me talking and that's what keeps me honest and open. So um, when he uh, sat me, when he pulled me back down onto his lap, we were watching Lilo and Stitch. And he uh, whispered in my ear, he was mouthing along to the to what the characters were saying at that moment in the episode. And he started whispering in my ear, uh, Ohana means family, and family means that no one gets left behind. So he was doing something inappropriate and trying to disarm me using the trust that he's previously established with me. So... It was really hard because I had to see him again and again after that. And I think he understood that he broke my trust. So after that, um, I, it was very hard. It was awkward because I didn't know how to deal with him. And my parents would like give him rides and he would sit next to me. And I could tell he was always checking for my temperament, like trying to see where I was at with him. It was just really awkward. Um, so, in regards to family, I believe that was the last instance from what I could remember. Um, after that, my parents got really strict and wouldn't even let us come around family members. Uh, so the only, like, uh, people I was dealing with were, like, acquaintances or teammates from school. Like, I, we just were not around family much after that. Um, but, uh, as I, um, when I was dating, when I started, and I, I realized this is going to be a long podcast, so... Um, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try and make sure I cover everything that needs to be covered. Um, but yes, when we, uh, when I, when I first started dating, uh, there was a lot of sexual inappropriateness in my relationships, which I think I mentioned earlier. Um, I dated a lot of people that I met online and I also had a lot of inappropriate relationships with authority figures, like coaches, uh, teachers, people who uh, should not have been looking at me or interacting with me in that manner. Um, but I, a lot of the times there was a big age gap. Um, and in a few of the relationships I was in, I was blackmailed into sending inappropriate pictures um, and talking dirty um, to people. I was blackmailed because a lot of the people I dated knew how strict my parents were. And they would blackmail me because I, I didn't understand how to be secretive at that time. 
um, I was trying to learn how to do so, but I did make some really foolish errors, like calling people from my house phone and not knowing how to block numbers on the house phone, um, or talking to them on my computer and then having like my computer heavily monitored, like things like that, uh, where I could just get caught in my, in my tracks. So, um, they would blackmail me, but with like threatening to call my parents, um, at times that they knew I wasn't available to talk and, and tell them about our relationship. Um, and being that they were so much older and I've always been blamed in the past for the abuse that I've experienced, you know, I think they understood that, you know, that was a very easy way to blackmail me. So I was blackmailed into, you know, doing sexual favors for these people when I did not want to whatsoever. Um, and aside from my relationships, in college, um, my sophomore year of college, I um, went to a party with my roommate. It was a dorm party. And my roommate's best friend, who was hosting the party, uh, date raped me. Uh, I literally had one shot and I was basically passing out um he raped me in my sleep and did not bother to put my pants on um afterwards it was a long process that I don't feel like getting into it didn't all it wasn't just a one and done like he was it, it, it's just a very long and really complicated process um I it's just difficult to talk about to be honest but I he did rate me in my sleep and um he got into my dorm via um my roommate and he raped the both of us after he raped me he raped her and when I woke up I just had blood on me and my pants were not on and I saw him sleeping in her room uh in her bed and it was very traumatizing. Um, my first instinct was to go straight to a nurse because I was concerned about the blood and that he didn't use protection. I, I didn't even care for a rape kit. I was honestly just worried that I was pregnant and I was going to have to explain to my parents because I knew they would blame me. So my first instinct was to make sure I wasn't pregnant because I was very ignorant when it came to sex. And so I ran to the nurse's station begging for a pregnancy kit and they told me that they couldn't give me one. And then I started crying and I told them I desperately needed one because I was just raped and I had to make sure I wasn't pregnant. And instead of, you know, like, they, they immediately called the police. Uh, detectives were involved. Long story short, my rapist got arrested. Um, my parents ended up finding out and again, I was blamed. So, not only do I have to work through sexual trauma, but I also have to work through an unbelievable amount of shame and guilt. Because almost every instance that I've experienced, I was blamed for. So, uh, I want to be open about that because shame and guilt are things that unfortunately are often experienced by people who are abused and I just want to 
explain or um, shed light on how the shame and guilt possibly manifest within survivors. That was hard. (laughs) That one was harder than I um, expected it to be. But uh, so I, I spoke on physical abuse. I've spoken on uh, sexual abuse. So I think I'm going to end the podcast with emotional and psychological abuse and then how all of this abuse has manifested into borderline personality disorder. Um, so psychological and emotional abuse are the most difficult types of abuse because they are the hardest to identify and they have the longest lasting effects. They dig into your psyche, they influence your self-talk, they influence your self-esteem, the, they influence how you feel about yourself. They are toxic forms of abuse. Um, they are also the most common forms of abuse because they are the easiest to get away with. So, you know, my mother, she, it's almost draining talking about the kind of psychological abuse I've encountered from her because it was every day of my life since I was born that I experienced psychological abuse from my mother or uh, since I was old enough to process language. Um, But I don't want to rush through it because I know that some people are dealing with this and they need to hear, you know, the implications of this kind of abuse. So I'm not going to rush through it, even though I'm a bit drained right now. I think it's important to thoroughly talk about uh, this kind of abuse. Uh, So a lot of my earlier years were spent, I spent uh, being told how fat and ugly I was. Um, I was always being made fun of for my weight because my family was poor. We could not afford healthy foods and we were also immigrants that weren't educated. So we didn't know that rice and beans for dinner every night was not nutritional. Um, so I was overweight as a kid and Instead of being made fun of in school, I was actually being picked on my family for being this way more so than anything. Um, I was also a very emotional child. I cried a lot. Uh, I got really, my feelings were easily bruised and I got made fun of for being this way. Um, There was also not enough privacy in my life growing up. Like I mentioned, you know, just barging in on my sleep and when I was in the bathroom, I was very intimidated by my mother for a long time. And I am just now learning that that was a form of psychological abuse that she was using to keep me under control. Um... When I got older and, you know, it wasn't acceptable to call me, over, you know, fat and ugly anymore and, you know, all of these very overt forms of verbal abuse, the tactics became a lot more covert. Uh, instead of specifically saying I'm fat, she would project 
her rage and her wrath onto other people and make it seem like they were the ones thinking these things about me. So instead of saying, you're fat, 